Okay, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Easy. I know what you're thinking. Calm down. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. For this is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burnt outside the camp. So this this is a greater metaphor if you've been here for Hebrews. um, The sacrifices of the animals. It's a metaphor for uh, the penalties and the... um, uh, What's the word? Uh, The penalties and the severity of sin. Right, The severity of sin, uh, the killing of an animal, the sacrifice that is to be made um, at the altar. And it is, um, it, it, it is a metaphor that is expressed uh, for Jesus Christ and the sacrifice he has made. Right? Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledged his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. And pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you, the more earnestly to do this in order, that I may be restored to you sooner. Now, may God of peace, who brought, again, brought you again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everlasting good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Only a couple of verses left. Hang in there. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes. Great, greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we, we, ask and, uh, we ask that you would show up tonight. Lord, and I guess that's a silly prayer because you are here. You are here and you are willing. I guess, Lord, uh, what I should be praying is that we would show up tonight. Lord, that our hearts would show up tonight, that our minds would show up tonight. You are here, ready to speak to us. 
you're always here ready to offer wisdom. And I, I, I pray that we'd have the humility to, to receive what you have to give us. Lord, open up our hearts and our minds, God. Um, and Lord, may what is said tonight, Lord, be etched upon our hearts for all of eternity. God, sift through uh, maybe the, uh, the imperfections of my speech, Lord, but, but rather, God, I, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be what speaks to us most. So, Father, in whatever way possible, speak to us tonight. We desire you greatly. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're here at the end of Hebrews, right? Uh, it's been long, it's been good, and so far this book has been very rich, right? It's, it's been rich with exalting Christ above all other holy things, right? That's what the first few chapters were about. The first few chapters of, uh, of Hebrews was about exalting Christ over things that we might consider holy, but really when put and compared to Jesus aren't holy at all right? So we have like biblical figures such as David and Moses, right? We have these incredibly uh, holy figures that we look at in scripture, but when we compare them to Christ, they, they pale in comparison, right? And, and the author of Hebrews also aligned Jesus. We, we think of holier than like godly people. We think of like angels, right? We think of angels being super holy and magnificent, but when compared to Jesus, it's pale in comparison as far as their glory, Learn about how honoring Jesus is creator God. And, and I love how Pastor Mark, he talked about a God that is so huge. It is amazing how he could be so personal as well. It's fantastic. The relationship that he seeks with us, knowing all that he knows about you and I, still decides that he will do whatever it takes to get you and I into his family, Right? Even knowing all, all of the secrets that not even the person closest to you knows. What you know in your heart, God knows and loves you and has died for you anyways. Right? As I said, I, I will do whatever it takes to uh, rescue this shattered relationship I have with my child. We also t- he also talked, the pastor in Hebrews talked about holy warnings, about falling away from the rest of Christ. There was a couple chapters dedicated solely, guys, to the preservation of our souls by entering into the rest that Christ has to offer, right? How some of us, as, especially as Americans, we're going and going and going and going. We're constantly working our butts off. We're continually trying to prove ourselves. We're continually trying to work for accolades that we've made up, right? Like, what is an A? Like, what is it? You don't know. You don't know what an A is. It's just something you made up to compare yourself to someone else, right? Right? So it's like we we work so hard for these things, and we forsake the health of our souls in the meantime. So we talked about finding a restful Sabbath in Christ. Taking one day where we say, my work is not going to take hold of me. It doesn't own me. Christ owns me, right? So maintaining healthy rest in Christ. And then we've also continually, through very confusing parts of Hebrews, and even in chapter 13, there's some confusing parts, but in navigating Hebrews with this concept that all these sacrifices that used to be made in the Old Testament, they are all to point to the greater sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Of the entirety of the Bible, the entirety of Scripture. If you haven't heard this before, you haven't been to Sunday nights often. The, the, the entirety of Scripture is about Jesus. All of it. It is all about Christ. 
Every single chapter is about Christ. And it is all pointing to him or pointing back to him. It's about Jesus. And we have also had firm reminders of the inheritance we have from heaven, as Pastor Mark went on last week, about the benefits to our faith, about being steadfast. And now the pastor of Hebrews, and we don't think of the, the letter of Hebrews, it's not necessarily a letter, it's written more like a sermon, right? It's written, as, it, it just literarily, it's written as something that's supposed to be recited as a sermon, Right? And, and the, so the pastor of Hebrews is closing up, and it seems as though not all of this in this chapter, in, in chapter 13, not a lot of it ties in to the rest of it. It just seems very random in nature, right? He's like, well, you've never talked about marriage before. Why all this? And leaders, like, you've never talked about this. And, and all, like, you would think that the conclusion is a recap for those of you who have written essays, which many of you are doing right now currently and are supposed to be doing that instead of being here, Right? <laughs> Right? We know that in writing essays, your conclusion is where you're restating your thesis, right? It is where you're kind of recapping, where you're drawing your conclusions. But it seems in this kind of, that, that this conclusion here has nothing to do sometimes with what the pastor of Hebrews has been telling us. He's like, not in conclusion, Christ is the ultimate sacrifice and uh, and this is what it means to be a faithful, right? He's not really talking about that. In fact, he seems to be kind of writing like what we would see in the book of Proverbs. Kind of what we'd see in the book of Proverbs. And, and if you guys don't know what Proverbs are, they're just, there's a whole book dedicated to them. Read them. They're awesome. And it's just a bunch of like little chunks of wisdom just here and there. It's like, it's like Twitter, right? It's just Twitter wisdom. That's all it is, right? That's what the book of Proverbs is. It's just little bits of wisdom that you can kind of latch onto and you can remember that tiny bit of wisdom, but they're random. Like if you read a chapter of, uh, of Proverbs, it's not always congruent. It's not always just, uh, they're not building off of one another. Some of them are totally random. It'll, it'll, talk, it'll say something about marriage, then it'll say something about leadership, just like this, right? It says something about marriage, then leadership, right? Totally not really having to do with one another. And I, I was kind of meditating over this, and I was wondering, why, why conclude like this? He had this brilliant case of, of linking the sacrifices of the temple all the way uh, to the sacrifice of Jesus, and then he would build this case onto what it means to be faithful, and then all of, this, all of the sudden, there's just these random proverbs at the very end. Almost like he's like, by the way, this, this, and this, and this, Right? And I think, and this totally, like, I, I'm not this guy, right? I'm not this pastor. Um, I, I can't tell you what he was thinking. But the way I'm receiving it is this. Is that all throughout the book of Hebrews, if you've been with us long enough, a lot of it's very heady. A lot of it's very diving deep into the Old Testament. We actually, in Hebrews chapter 10, we had a whole sermon dedicated to, you're not going to understand Jesus if all you do is listen to me or Pastor Mark or one of the teachers once a Sunday, right? You're not going to totally understand this stuff. It's deep. It's deeper than just an hour on Sunday, right? It's deeper than that, right? We had a whole, we had a whole sermon dedicated to that to go read your Bible, right? Go do it yourself. But at the end of, of, of just racking our brains with some of these truths, I think at the end of the day, he knows that all we want sometimes at the end of all this is just some practical wisdom to live by. Just give, 
just I, I know, I know, propitiation, transubstantiation, like all, all of this, like the Trinity and uh, yes, metaphysics, yeah, yeah, all of that. Just tell me how to be a good husband. Right? Or just please just tell me how to like weave through this whole like process of, of being a congregant at a church. Or please just how do I deal with this difficult person next to me? And that's what the book of Proverbs is. And, it's, and what a lot of the epistles do is sometimes they deviate and they'll just give us little bits of wisdom like that. Because I think these pastors understand that sometimes at the end of the day, we're just like, just give me, give me a bone, right? Throw me a bone. Just give me something I can chew on this week that'll make me a better person, right? And we've talked thoroughly that Christianity isn't about being a better person. It's about drawing closer to Jesus and you will eventually, your, your characters will intermingle. But sometimes we do just need this, tell me something that I could just go home with, right? That's what a proverb is. And so that's what we're going to do. And I, I tend to, just my teaching style, guys, you know, for those of you that have been here a while, my teaching style is I, I grab one idea and I beat it until it's dead, Right? I grab one idea, and you guys, you know this. I repeat myself over and over and over again, and you guys hate me towards the end, but at least you kind of remember it, right? And I'm a big idea kind of guy. I like taking a huge passage and just kind of making one general theme out of all of it. That's why I despise passages like this. I despise it because I have to like go verse by verse, which is kind of like what the foundation of Calvary Chapel is on, right? Verse by verse. And so that's what we're going to do. We're just, I, I, I've split this passage into seven Proverbs. All right, seven Proverbs for us. All right, and so we're just going to dive into it. We're going to have fun. We're going to have a little bit of just notes to go home with. And we're going to go into Monday, better people, okay? Sound good? Yeah? I think that's, a, that's, a, that's an honest goal at the end of church. I just, can I be a better person by Monday? Sure, right? So let's do it. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 13. It says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The word love here, guys, in, in the first proverb here is to exercise brotherly love. Exercise brotherly love. The word love here comes from the root phila, where we get our word Philadelphia. Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, right? Brotherly love, philo. Brotherly love. And the root word phila means brotherly love. That's exactly what this camaraderie, brotherly type love. And Christianity, guys, is built upon this type of love. Like the, the, the literal foundations of the church itself was built upon a close brotherly bond that was formed by Jesus and his disciples. Was it not? This camaraderie, brotherly love between all of the disciples was the foundation of the ministry of the church. Now, you can insert sisterly love if you're having an issue with this, right? But the word means the same thing. It means the same thing. A brotherly or sisterly bond is what ties each and every one of us in the church together. It is a brotherly love. See, the Greeks, they were much smarter than we are. We have one word for love, right? love, right? We have one word for love, love. I love my wife and I love baby back ribs, right? I love my wife and I love baby back ribs. Now let's hope I don't love baby back ribs in the same way I love my wife and vice versa, right? Let's hope that's not the case, right? Or I love my dog and I love my brother. 
right? Not the same thing, right? I love ice cream. I love my sister. Not the same type of love. So, so guys, the, the, the Greeks formed three different types of love. They formed eros, which is a love for objects. It's where we get the word erotica, right? It's a love for objects. Objectifying, right? Right? We have that word. It, it, it is a hot topic in our society of objectifying women, right? It's an eros type love. It's a love you only have for an object. You ever hear of love at first sight? Eros. Because you only love it because they're pleasing to your eyes, right? It's the love you have for an object. It's the love you have for ice cream or ribs, right? And then there's uh, agape love. There's agape love. And agape is a selfless love. It's the love that is described as the love that God has for us. And it was often described in the Greek culture it was described as a love that a mother has for her child. Because a baby can't do anything, right? Have you guys noticed that, 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 that human babies are like the most like useless things on the planet? You guys noticed that, right? They can't even like do this, right? Like they can't, like even like baby chimpanzees can latch onto their mothers and horses can walk right out of the womb, but humans, nothing, nothing, right? Nothing. Right? And, and so the baby can't do anything, and all the baby wants is food from the mom, but the mom has this unconditional love to provide and to provide and to, pro- and, and to provide, no matter how selfish that baby or that child going into adulthood when they're in college may be, right? Right? Ooh. Ah, right? Be nice to your moms, okay? And then there's the, there's the other one, which is philo, phileo love. Phileo love. It's that brotherly love. And it's this mutual, uh, what I heard at a youth camp once, it's ping pong love, right? It is, you know, you know, it's a give and take type of love. It's a love that you have for your best friend or your brothers or your sisters or, or the church community you have. It is this mutual uh, building one another, iron sharpens iron type love. And there's agape in that in so much as I give you agape, you give me agape. That, it's that brotherly Ping pong love, right? And that's what he's describing here. And that's what the church is built on. Jesus said in John chapter 13 that by this, by this, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. He said the outside world, and it also says this in 1 Thessalonians, it said the outside world, they're going to know you're Christians, not because you say you're Christian or because you have a cheesy bumper sticker, Right? They're going to know you're Christians by the way you treat your parents, the way you treat your friends, the way you treat your teachers. They're going to understand this about you by the way you treat your brothers and your sisters in Christ. So be very careful, and I'm very guilty of this, but be very careful of how you speak about different church leaders or different Christians, different churches. And once again, I'm very, very guilty of probably the most guilty here because I feel I have extra ammunition to be judgmental because I'm a pastor, but I'm not. But, but how are we showing our love for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Because Jesus said, by this, the world will know that you are my disciple by the way you love other brothers and sisters, right? I have to be very careful with that. This is the mark of a Christian. Not just towards the people we know well either, right? Not just the people we know well, but also the strangers. It says right here, do not neglect to show hospitalities to strangers. He says, for some have entertained angels unknowingly. We see that, that in, the, in, the, uh, in, in Genesis, we see that. 
We see that all throughout the Old Testament where people unknowingly hosted angels just of their hospitality, right? But I, and, and, and how this applies to us, I'm not saying you always have to be like worrying, like, is that an angel, right? Like, do I give him a couple bucks, right? But he says to always show hospitality to strangers. Guys, um, I don't know if you know this, but as far as Western civilization, as far as history is concerned, um, Christians are the founders of modern hospitality. Christian culture is the founder of modern hospitality. Taking in the poor, giving to charity, that, didn't, that just didn't exist before Christianity. Look in history. It didn't. Helping the less fortunate? I'm telling you, I've studied this. Like, you don't see this kind of altruism, this kind of letting in strangers, this kind of giving of your finances and giving of your time and your care selflessly. Christianity was the catalyst for this part of human nature. Whether people do it because of Christianity or not, it was the catalyst in history for this type of thing. We are the originators of hospitality and selfless giving. Of institutionalized hospitality. Hotels back then, motels, like as, as far as Greek culture is concerned, it, it, it was the worst of places that you could possibly go. You were taken advantage of monetarily or sexually or physically. It was hard for travelers. And with, with the coming of Christianity, there was this concept of hospitality where people in history, when they were wandering or merchants were coming from town to town, they would always look for Christians' houses because they knew that they wouldn't be beaten or mugged or sexually abused there. But even the church back then had rules as far as hospitality is concerned. There was a rule established in AD 90 by, uh, you know, this is when the second generation was coming, right? The second generation, the people that were discipled by James and John and Peter, right? The second generation church was rising up and they actually had to take measures to make sure that Christians weren't the ones getting taken advantage of with their hospitality, right? So they had to, um, they had to kind of come up with boundaries. And so their boundaries were that they were to show hospitality, but not without restrictions, meaning that they were to let people stay in their homes, but only for a day and that they were to give, but never, but they were never to give money. They were always to give food and clothes and resources, they were always to find ways to not be taken advantage of, but to give to their communities, right? Now, we give to charities. We give to people in need monetarily or as far as our resources go. But this is, this is showing brotherly love, guys. This is who we are. And, and, and you can't use the excuse, well, I don't know what they're going through. They could be trying to scam me. Find ways to be kind to people. It doesn't have to be every single person you see, but there's people in need. Find ways to show these acts of altruism. And I'll tell you why. In Matthew chapter 25, it says this. Jesus is saying this. He says, he says this to his followers at the end. It's, it, he, it's a parable. He's talking about a king who, um, who was talking to his servants. And he said, for I was hungry and you gave me food. He's talking to his followers here. For I was hungry and, I gave, and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, 
When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Followers of Jesus saying, What we never you were never hungry, like we never gave you food, you you were never cold, we never gave you clothes, you were never sick, we never came to visit you in the hospital. We we never did that. And, and Jesus is saying, No, 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 no. If you did this to the most unfortunate of us all, you did it to me. And, and this isn't a guilt or scare tactic, but what I have to do in my head, just because as sinful as I am, this is, this is what I have to now rationalize in my brain, is that these people that I'm not helping, am I denying Jesus as well in them? Right? And I'm not saying that's gospel truth right there, but that's what I have to do in my sinful brain, is I have to say, am I, by neglecting to help these people in need, Am I saying no to Jesus? Right? Now, once again, there's limitations to our brotherly love as to not get taken advantage of in the body of Christ. Right? Right? Just any person who asks you for change, you don't just do that. You don't know what's going to happen. Right? You don't just let any stranger into your home that says that they need a home. Right? But there are measures that we can take, and there's things that we can do to help these people. Be wise. But do not be so critical that you lose your empathy and compassion. Exercise brotherly love. That is our first proverb. The first proverb of Romans chapter 13 is to exercise brotherly love with restraint, with wisdom, but with generosity and love. Amen? The second proverb in verse 3 we see, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are in the body. Proverb number two, guys. Proverb number two is to practice functional Christian empathy. To practice functional Christian empathy. At this point in time, everyone, because it says, remember those who are in prison as though you are in prison with them, right? And we think right now, like, prison. I don't know, like, bank robbers, Child molesters, right? Like, so, like, these things that pop into our brain, people in prison, right? But I want you to think back at this time. The people that they're talking about being in prison are Christians that were being imprisoned for their faith in Christ. And it is easy when people aren't in your sphere anymore to just forget about them. And so what the pastor of Hebrews is saying, he's saying you need to remember those who have been suffering for Christ's sake. And you need to be remembering them, and it is happening to you as well. There's this empathy that ought to take place within the body of Christ. Because we are one body. As it declares all throughout Scripture that there are many members, but one body, right? Some people are the hand, some people are the foot, some people are the ears, some people are the other parts, right? There's, there's, there's many members of the body, and each have their specific function. Now listen, it is, it is insane for if I have a broken leg for the rest of my body to be like, who cares, right? And just keep walking, 
When I have a broken leg, all of my other body comes, all my other members come to its rescue, right? They hold it. They nurture it back to health. They do whatever is possible. My mind's like 911, right? And my legs are like, hold it. I don't know why it helps, but hold it, right? There's, there's this natural reaction within a body. When you get cut or bruised, your body goes to work to heal itself. And requires many members and many functions to have that happen. And what we need to do is not get so lost in our, not get so blinded in our little sphere, our little bubble of life that we forget about the people suffering around us. So yeah, there's need to help strangers out, but there's a great need to help out the body of Christ here. And I'll I'll, I'll leave it at this, just being vulnerable for a second. There are two people that used to go here at this church. Two people that I was actually very, fairly good friends with. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say we were best friends, but um, I would say I was, I was a bigger part of their lives than they were of mine. It was one, it was one of those deals. But, but we were good friends. We hung out often. Uh, we went to different, you know, church events together. Hung out, you know, uh, not super often, but we were good friends. They came to this church and then. All of a sudden, they're just kind of gone, right? They're just kind of gone. And I, I really didn't, didn't register with me. Didn't register with me, guys, because I, I'm in my, my bubble, right? You could judge me. I see some of you, right? You can judge me. But, like, we're all kind of in our, our, our little bubble, right? A few months later, I came to figure out that they both went through It, it was the most difficult and trying year of their lives. But because they were kind of out of my, you know, little, like, direct line of sight, didn't even think to call them up. You know, I knew that they were gone. I noticed that they hadn't shown up in a while, but I just figured, oh, you know, they're just backsliding, whatever, you know. I don't know, sometimes you got to do that. You just got to be like, ah, you know, they'll come back. I never, I never gave him a call. Turns out I should have. Might have been, might have been the difference between them making certain decisions in their lives. Their lives could have been a lot different if one person had just, hey, how you doing? Right? Functional Christian empathy. We have to be, if we're a body, we have to be keen on who's suffering around us. Now, I'm not saying that responsibility is solely on you, right? With, like, these two people, the responsibility wasn't solely on me. It was on every other member of the body of Christ that knew them too, right? This was not just on me, but I feel personally responsible for a lot of the things that happened in them. And some of us, we choose to ignore the suffering happening around us because it is inconvenient, huh? It is inconvenient to be keen on the sufferings of others. Because we know we're how, the second we know about it, we have to do something about it. And what if we, what if we don't have the solution, right? Practice functional Christian empathy in the sense that you see other people as important members of the body. And if they're hurting, so are you. Amen? The third proverb of Hebrews chapter 13. One of the most controversial here. Honor marriage. Honor it. Some of you are like, 
cool, not married. (laughs) I think, my wife and I have been discussing this a little bit, if you're not married, it is up to you to honor the institution of marriage just as much as if you weren't. You ought to be honoring the institution of marriage. Now, we have this thing in our heads where, you know, some of us, we idolize marriage so much, you know, that all we want to do is get married, right? And you just can't wait, and you have it all written down in your journal. You know exactly what's going on. You know exactly the type of person you're going to marry. You know exactly where the wedding's going to be. You know exactly who's going to be your maid of honor already. You know, all this stuff, right? You have it all planned out. And you've idolized marriage towards the point where, Uh, You don't get it. And some of you are on the opposite end of that where you've idolized individuality so much that you're actually, I'm never getting married. Ball and chain, that's all it is, right? Just holding me back, holding me down, right? Clipping my wings, right? Both are idolatry, right? We need to have this healthy view of marriage. And, and, and there's many ways we can un- have an unhealthy view of marriage, right? There's many different ways. And that's a sermon for another time that I'm not going to give you. Pastor Mark will, right? Um, so <laughs> I'm not going to give you a sermon on marriage. I've been married for almost five months. Cool? So I can't give you, like, the skinny, all right? I can't. I, I'm, I'm not ready to write a book yet, okay? Um, I can't even write a brochure, Right, like, but yeah, I can't even, I can't even post. I haven't even posted on Facebook yet about it. Wisdom for marriage, right? Just I can't. We we were five months into this, right? But there's one thing that I'm going to emphasize because the text emphasizes it. It says, "Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled." It's really important. There really isn't enough time to emphasize this enough, but simply put, I'm going to get awkward. Sex is something that's created to be amazing. And some of you have cheapened it. He's created sex to be a physical representation of a unity between a husband and wife. It's a physical representation of a spiritual and emotional unity that you will only understand when you do get married. It's so much more than physical sex. And you know that when you get married, right? You, you understand it finally. Like so, something clicks and you're like, whoa. It is, it is so much more than just body parts. It is so much more than I like her and she likes me. It's more than that. It is, it is something that God has obviously created it for something bigger than our society has painted it to be, right? So many people handle this wrong, right? And I would say the church handles it just as wrong sometimes as the world does, right? Can you agree with me? How many of you grew up in that church that's like sex is dirty, gross, and immoral? Save it for your husband, right? Or save it for your wife, right? It's dirty. It's disgusting. Save it for marriage, right? You're like, oh, well, come on. Like, you know, I don't have to be, like, so the church has handled it really poorly. Some of you grew up in that environment where your parents have just scared you into certain things, right? Into, like, refraining from certain things. Or maybe you've just grown up in such an 
unhealthy sexual environment where you're just like, do you know what? I, I have no idea what this thing is. It is beautiful and pure, and it is meant to be enjoyed the way God has created it. And so I'm not going to scare you guys and say, hey, listen to me, right? Like, I'm not going to tell you about STDs and try and scare you into not doing it before marriage. That's not the pastor's job. It's not anyone's job. It's, It's my job as a married pastor to tell you, it's so beautiful. Don't cheapen it. And I can tell you as someone who waited, it's beautiful. Don't cheapen it. And for those of you that feel like you, ha- you have a past in which you feel like you've already cheapened it and you've made it undefiled, grace will cover you in your marriage, I promise. I promise. But I don't want to come up here on the pulpit and bang on it and tell you, don't do it, it's bad. I want to tell you it's worth waiting for. It's worth it. It's so worth it. And some of you, I see the looks in your eyes right now. You hate me, right? It's the word. Take it up with God, not me, right? And as far as judgment is concerned, as what it declares here, we've talked about this many times. Judgment is often manifested in the removal of blessing. That's oftentimes in the narrative of Scripture. God's judgment is really him just saying, oh, like, okay, I won't bless you then. (laughs) Here you go. It can be so amazing. And it's worth it. Don't cheapen it. Keep it pure. And if you need help, talk to us pastors. Right? Amen? Amen? All right. Some of you fake amens. It's all right. You're allowed to be mad at me. Proverb of Romans chapter 13, Proverb 4, verse 5. Be content. It says in verse 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Right? Chris is mad at me because of what I said about sex. (laughs) Pastor Chris, everyone. No, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do? do to me. Listen, listen guys, this is really cool. Because if your chief aim is to obtain security for yourself, which really is like when you boil it down and kind of take away the the facade, that's what the American dream is. The American dream is building financial security for yourself. That's, That's what it is, right? Just bare bones, that's it. Financial security. That is our God. If your chief aim in life is to obtain security for yourself, you will never be met with those moments where God has done something incredibly miraculous in providing for you. And so here's the thing. You can live your life building this kingdom up for yourself in which you want to, um, you want to encamp yourself with bricks made out of money. You want to create a wall of security for yourself financially, right? You, you, want to, you want to build up this kingdom of financial security 
And in so doing, it has become what you have built your house on. It's what you've built your life upon is this pursuit of, of financial gain and security. And I know some of you are like, do you college top ramen every night? Like, no, no idea what you're talking about, right? A lot of what college is is graduate, get a good job, provide for your family, save up for retirement, die. <laughs> Come on, guys. Like, like that, this, and, and this, this is what the pattern of our life can be if we do not interweave it with purpose. Is retirement bad? Absolutely not, right? It is, good, it, it is good to save up for yourself. Is getting a degree bad? Is getting a good job bad? Is making money bad? Absolutely not. But keep your life free from the love of money. Guys, money is like fire. It's a tool. Fire in a fireplace is, is great. Nice and warm, but fire outside of the fireplace, bad, right? The same thing could be said about sex, right? It's like a baseball bat. It could be used to hit a home run or it can be used to it can be used violently, right? Money isn't bad. It is amoral. It is a tool. Right? There's there's nothing inherently bad with money, but the love of money. Greed. You've seen it. You've seen it in people's lives. Maybe you've seen it in your own life. Maybe you've seen it in your parents' life. You've seen it in our in our country's life, right? Love of, if your life is free from the love of money, you will get to experience those moments in which God is the primary provider and sustainer of your life and your livelihood. I know so many people that are very, very wealthy who don't have any love for money. And they're the most generous people I have ever met in my life. The richest people in our fellowship, guys, the people who really pay for this building, right, with their tithes because they make a lot of money, they are also the most generous and godly people I've ever met. They are so healthy because they have built this life around the love of Jesus. And they've gotten to watch moment after moment while they're giving away the money they make that God increases it tenfold. This isn't prosperity gospel. I'm not telling you give money and God will give you 10 times that amount back. What I am telling you is that those who are free from a love of money will be able to say, I'm not going to fear anything. Because if money's taken away from me, God's still the one who provides for me. Teach yourself. Teach yourself how to take risks how to give generously. Teach yourself how to make God the primary sustainer of your soul and your security. That way when money leaves, which it does, it leaves and it comes, you know, it comes and goes. For most of us, statistically, we're going to be doing this financially the rest of our lives, right? If you plant your feet firmly in the security of Jesus' loving provision, whether money does this, it doesn't matter to you. It doesn't matter to you. You know where your security lies. Amen? Proverbs 5. Only three more. Hang in there. Leadership. So recognize and honor real godly leadership. It says in verse 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. 
consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not been benefited, those devoted to them. And then verse 17 also says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give uh, will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So guys, leadership is kind of hard, right? Leadership is a hard one to grapple with because we, especially as millennials, right? We as millennials... Uh, the M word, right? It seems to be this weird like connotation that comes to millennials. That's just who we are, right? But we as millennials are naturally wary of authority. It is ingrained inside of us. We are naturally wary of authority. It is ingrained in us not to take leaders at their word and to always question moral authority. It is ingrained in us. Something has happened in our generation, well, I should say in the past generation, that has made us wary of leadership. It makes sense because you and I, we have grown up in a corrupt government and a corrupt church. That's what we know. That's what we know. More often than not, we've heard stories of pastors cheating on their wives. All of these uh, televised pastors, you know, with with all of their greed and their financial gain. And then there's this financial scandal that's always happening. Or some of you have had parents that have hopped from church to church to church because they keep getting burned by different people, right? So you've grown up, for some of you, in this corrupt church almost, where you're learning to be wary of authority. And the same has happened in the way our generation perceives government as well. We didn't get to grow up with the greatest generation running the country, right? We didn't get to grow up with that. We grew up with corrupt, financially hungry, warmongering politicians. We don't understand what it means to have a moral political system. We don't have that in our minds. We have nothing to like kind of go back to. People talk about it, right? Like older people, they talk about the good old days, but we have no reference point. We have absolutely no reference point. And so it's of the utmost importance, guys. That is why, because we've grown up, guys, because some of you, you've really, really been burned by your leaders. Some of you have really been burned hard. That is why for you specifically, it is of the utmost importance to recognize godly leadership and elevate and honor it. It is our job as young people and as older people in, in whatever sphere we have. I'm talking about to younger people just because there tends to, we tend to have more leaders than we have followers, right? But it is of the utmost importance to recognize godly leadership. It says right here, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let me tell you this. When you finally recognize a good godly leader, what advantage is it to you to kind of groan and complain about them? 
Because here's the thing. Some of us, we might have had some pretty corrupt or bad leaders in our lives, and then we run into a good leader, and we're automatically wary of them. But the second you discover that they're a godly leader after the Lord's heart and wanting to shepherd you properly, it is so important that you uplift them and encourage them because your encouragement may be the difference. That's how you play your part. You need to bolster and encourage the good in leadership so that the bad isn't what's always being mentioned and being seen. Does that make sense? Is this making sense? It says in verse 17 that there's no advantage to you to submit uh, if you don't submit to good leaders. It's to your advantage if you submit to them because a leader, when in obedience to God and Scripture, can transform your life and your community around you. So when you see good leadership, encourage it, follow it, learn from it. And what is godly leadership, right? That's, that's a question I have to ask myself a lot, you know what I mean? As a pastor, especially as a young pastor, I have to ask myself this question a lot. Like, what does godly leadership actually mean? It could be chumped up to this. Though imperfectly, a godly leader, a good leader, someone worth following, though they might do it imperfectly, someone who matches their words and their life with this, Someone who clearly answers to a higher authority. Someone who is submitted to the real senior pastor, Jesus Christ. Someone who is a sheep in the sheepfold of the great shepherd, Jesus. Be wary of a leader who doesn't have leaders himself. Always question a leader who does not allow you to ask questions. Always. Leaders ought to be accountable to Christ, but also to the brothers and sisters around them. And that's how you will know who to follow. If they keep themselves accountable to the book and to the people around them when they're not able to look at this clearly and with a sober mind, they submit themselves to the leaders around them. Christ set up 12 apostles for a reason. He didn't just grab Peter and say, dude, you follow me for three years. It's just going to be you, man. Right? How much of a nightmare would that have been? He grabbed 12 people. He grabbed a multitude of people. He he established a brotherhood or a sisterhood because there was women that also followed him. He established these people to have this mutual accountability and authority. There was no one person besides Christ leading this thing. Because there's this warning in verse 8 that says not to be swayed by false teaching. Listen, any church leader that does not elevate the name of Christ. If he does not elevate the name of Christ, if he or she is not continually elevating Christ's name unabashedly and blatantly, he is elevating or she is elevating something else. When Christ is not being exalted, something else is. Do not allow words to kind of work around this. Someone is not preaching the name of Christ. The name of Christ. They're not a godly leader. Know this. 
Judge me according to this. Judge Pastor Mark according to this. Pastor Rob on Sunday mornings according to this. Judge Pastor Brett according to, the, according to this. Judge us all according to how we elevate Christ's name. And if we are, encourage us. Because leaders also receive a stricter judgment than all of you. I, by nature of being here, receive a stricter judgment from people and from Christ, just by nature of preaching you. Know that a leader's judgment and the way he receives criticism is far greater than you can imagine. So it's your job as a follower to encourage those. Listen, listen, I'm leaving. Pastor Mark's going to be up here, and he's going to be raising up a bunch of other young preachers to be up here. Encourage them when they're elevating the name of Christ Jesus. I bet there's a lot of corrupt pastors that if someone along the line just encouraged them a little bit more, or didn't criticize them so much, they would have been somewhere else. You know what I mean? There's your Proverbs. Amen? Proverbs 6 of Romans 13. This one will be short, hopefully. Verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Verse 10 through 11, um, I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll say, hey, go online and look at Hebrews uh, 9 through 10. Look at those sermons. Right? It explains that. But in verse 12, it says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For uh, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Here's the sixth proverb of Romans chapter 13. It is, Follow Jesus into the fray. Follow Jesus into the fray. Listen, Christ was an outcast. He was branded as an outsider and deviated from societal norms. That's what he did. He was outside the camp, right? He was an outsider. He, he endured reproach. And we are called to endure reproach likewise. And here's another millennial thing, or just a Christian thing right now at this point in history, right? Here, here's kind of a Christian thing that's happening right now. Especially what I've noticed in my generation, it is that there's this societal oddity that we find ourselves in because Christianity at one point had become the predominant worldview in the United States. At one point, Christianity had become so predominant in the United States and in normal in American culture that saying I'm Christian was almost like saying I'm German. No, you're not. Your great grandparents are from Germany. That doesn't, you're not German, right? But we, what do we say? Oh, I'm German, Italian. You're white, you mean, right? <laughs> By the way, the whitest thing you could ever say is I am part Cherokee. Just like super. <laughs> uh-huh. 
There's this societal oddity, guys, that we have where Christianity was so predominant in our culture. It was so predominant in American culture that it became just this normal thing to say, I'm Christian. And along the way, along the way, guys, the church got really comfortable. The church got really comfortable, and it began to compromise on a lot of things. Pastor Rob teaches this a lot, where it's very interesting how Christianity was on the rise, but like moral decline in politics and in the public sector, like, was on the decline, right? So, like, churches were growing, but somehow, like, the culture was just growing more evil. The church got really comfortable at one point because it it gained this social status, this normality. And guess what, guys? Guess what? Christianity is not designed to be, like, the majority Christianity isn't designed to be the prevailing worldview in any given culture. It's, it's designed to go into the fringes of society and, and, and bring in people that are outcasts. Does that make sense? So now, because we have this rich history in the United States of Christian being this predominant worldview, the countercultural thing has become to not be Christian. Does that make sense? So now the cool thing, the rebellious thing, is to, you know, oh, yeah, my parents went to church. My grandparents went to church. That's, you know, that's our thing, you know, a born Christian, whatever, baptized, all that stuff, went to youth group, went to youth camp a couple times, sang a lot of songs. It was good, right? Well, that's not for me. I'm more open-minded now. It's now the countercultural thing to reject Christianity because it had been so ingrained in the culture and in society. And so when we talk about Christianity being countercultural, we also we almost think like, no, it isn't. Like my mom and dad and my grandparents and my great grandparents, like it's not a countercultural thing. My whole family history is nothing but Christian. That's it's not countercultural. But now the reverse is happening. All right. It's just always in this flux, right? A real Christian faith is scandalously countercultural. It defies all social norms of follow your heart. It defies this self-indulgent culture of just do what feels right doesn't matter who you hurt along the way, make money, do what makes you happy, get powerful, get rich, follow your dreams no matter who you walk on to get there. It, it totally goes against the eye for an eye or the tooth for a tooth. It goes against, well, he talks to me this way, so I talk to him back this way. It, it, is, it is totally a different way of living. And you notice that it's a different way of living when you actually go into society and act like Christ. Some of us were Christian and we don't know why people hate Christians. I know why. We're so different. Right? We are so, like a real Christian is so incredibly different. A Christ follower, someone who is in Christ, lives on the, fr- uh, on the fray as Christ did. 
It says that Christ suffered outside the camp. We do the same, guys. We do the same. We suffer outside of society. We, we are the social outcasts. And I've said this before. If you're not okay with that label, this isn't for you. Because when everyone's going to be living for themselves, you're going to be living for the person next to you, even if that means you don't get ahead as much. While other people your age are going on to just make money, you're going to go on to help the world around you. When everyone else is being rude and maligning their mom, their dad, their grandparents, you're going to be the one calling them and blessing them. When everyone else is bad-mouthing and arguing and debating over these topics that mean nothing, you're going to be the one blessing people. And sometimes they're going to hate you for it. The aim of a Christian, sometimes, not all the time, but the aim of a Christian is to do good no matter how many people punch you while you're doing it. It's to do the right thing no matter how much flack you get for it. In our generation, we will be labeled a freak, but it will but we should bear that with pride. Because Christ bore your label with pride. We ought to we ought to bear the name of Christ proudly. Because he was able to hang on a, cro- on a cross and bear your name. Your identity he took upon himself when he was crucified on the cross. And he was proud of it. Saying that this is going to create greater unity between them and God. And so we should bear his name with pride. Even though it makes us on the phrase of society. If it creates whatever societal gap between us and them. It doesn't matter because Christ was ultimately lonely on that cross because he was bearing your sin and my sin. And since he bore that identity with pride and did it with joy in his heart, we ought to bear his name with joy and suffer likewise. Because it makes the world a better place and it draws us closer to our creator. And this leads us into our last little proverb, which is kind of my farewell to you. My last little bit of wisdom for you. Verse 15 says this, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's my last proverb for you. And this is, I might, I might be back again to preach, but this is technically my last sermon for you guys. So this is my last little bit of wisdom. It is all about Jesus. 
It is all about Jesus. It's very easy for that to become metaphorical in your life. And it's very easy for that to be something you say. And I've used this example before with my youth students, but it's very easy to say your relationship, your romantic relationship is centered around Christ just because you're both Christian, right? That's not what it means. You see, especially when it comes to ministry, it's so hard to make things about Jesus. Because God calls us to do awesome and exciting things, and he also calls us to be really cool people, right? So it's like there's things that God has called you to do. God's called you to major in something specific, or God's called you to a certain job, or God's called you with a certain family, and he's giving you tasks to do. You may have a spouse or children or or whatever walk of life you're in, God's called you to something specific. And, and your whole life is centered around this, what, what's, ne- what's my destiny, right? What's my destiny? Like what, is, like, what is this life about? What does God want to do? Like, the main question I get from my youth kids is, what's God's plan for my life, right? We just want to know, like, what, what, what is God about? What is it about, right? And then we could also get so consumed in this good people do this thing, good Christians do this, or good Christians don't do this, or good Christians listen to this, good Christians don't listen to this, right? And it's so easy to get caught up in this vortex of morality and obligation and in this weird place where nothing's about Jesus. It's all just grasping for shadows of things he's established. It is very easy to center our lives around the things he has called us to do or the way we are supposed to act. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he said, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That doesn't mean that that's the only thing he preached, right? It doesn't mean that Paul continually was only talking about the cross and the blood and the sacrifice. That would have been depressing and the church would be like zero people, Right? It means, though, that everything he says and all that he does, it is meant for the name and the glory of Jesus Christ. He is to be followed, obeyed, and looked to as the shepherd of our lives. If it is all about Jesus, my friends, if it is all about Jesus, you're not just going to stop cussing. Because that's what good Christians do. You are going to use your words to bolster up and encourage and shed light with your words in people's lives. If it's all about Jesus, you're not just going to not refrain from bad things. You are going to purposefully alter your life choices to affect as many people as you can. Because it is not enough to just refrain from immoral things. Because to live like that is to live like Christ died for you, but that he didn't rise again for you. It is all about Jesus. And listen, I truly believe that there's a difference between being a Christian and being in Christ. You guys heard me say this before the word christian is used very little in all throughout scripture it's used very little 
two, maybe three, depending on what translation you're using. A bunch of those times is used for other people to describe you. But the way Christians describe themselves in Scripture, the way the apostles described us, was not Christians, which means little Christ or Christ follower. It says in Christ. We are in Christ, brothers and sisters. And I, I've grown to despise this term, though I know it comes from a good place. I've grown to despise this term. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask my wife and those around me to keep me accountable to not saying this but I've grown to dislike the term, invite Jesus into your life. Some of you are now hearkening back to your youth camp days where the pastor with the lights and the fog machine is like asking you like, invite Jesus into your life. Invite him into your heart. Invite him. And I've grown to dislike that term so much because it almost, it gives this connotation like, He's a guest in your house. And on your terms, you're inviting him in. Oh, Jesus, have a seat, right? Can I get you something to drink? Like it's your house and it's your rules and it's your furniture and it's your stuff. And Christ is invited into this whole thing. I have grown to be grieved by that mentality because it sets you up for failure in your Christian walk. Because you will grow up thinking that you're the boss, you're the author of your own destiny, and you get to invite Jesus into this thing, and you're going to ask him to help you along the way, but ultimately it's your house. The reason that, that Paul and Peter and John have called us in Christ is because it's him who's inviting us. It's him who's inviting us, guys. We're not inviting him into this life that we're leading. We are accepting the invitation that he has to offer. So stop living your life like Christ is a guest and you're bringing him along in this, but accept the invitation he has to offer you. And, and, and he has said this, guys. He has said that I have come to set the captives free. Some of you guys have been living in your homes, right? Your metaphorical homes. Of, and it's been bitter and it's been lonely and it's been dark. And you've tried to invite Jesus in, but you notice that it's just not like home. You feel uncomfortable with it. And you feel guilty having, you know, like when you have a guest over that you didn't expect or that you feel like is more holy than you, or more important than you, and, and you feel embarrassed almost of, of, of your clutter and your 100 square foot dorm room, right? You have all this clutter and you, you just feel embarrassed. Like you want to like put the covers over stuff. You want to hide it in the closet. And that's how some of you have been living with Christ. You've invited him into your life, but you're embarrassed because there's all this dirty stuff in your life. There's all this stuff you want to hide from him. And it's created this barrier between you two. Because you're always trying to hide this stuff. So what Christ offers for you is move out. Just move out. But all my stuff's here. I got new stuff. I got new stuff for you. I got a new life, a new way of living, clutter-free. 
Come live with me. I'm inviting you. No, 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 leave your dirt. Leave your baggage. Come live with me. Some of you need to rewire that in your mind. So the worship team's going to come up and we're going to have communion here. And I want to, I haven't, I haven't done this in years just because I don't know where I stand with it, but I, I, I feel compelled by the Lord to do this tonight. So why don't we all close our eyes? This isn't a weird Kool-Aid thing, I promise. So everyone close your eyes. We're going to pray.